Okay, so we are about to present our interview with James Roberts in like 10 seconds, but all we ask is that if you enjoy this, please consider staying to the end and listening to some plugs of other stuff we do so you can continue to support us. Autobots, transform! Not you, Bumblebee. Welcome back to more and less than meets the eye. This is a Transformers podcast where we compare and contrast the critically panned live action movies by Michael Bay and the critically acclaimed books by uh, some guy. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined by Ben Phillips and I'm actually joined by that some guy, James Roberts. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I realised what your um, USP was until I heard that introduction. But fair enough. Yeah, yeah. it was. It was my pitch. Was I, we, Matt sent me like a like a ten hour retrospective of like the entirety <laughs> of Transformers on YouTube, and <laughs> they were kind of like skipping over the comic stuff. And I was like, boy, it's really interesting that kind of the two longest running Transformers universes at this point are the kind of two thousand five IDW continuity and these Michael Bay movies that have been going on since 2007 and they're also kind of running exactly concurrently with each other obviously there's a lot less content in the movies than there is in the comics but it is fascinating that one is the most watched version of Transformers I feel like ever just based on like how much money those Transformers movies make and then the other is where kind of the real hardcore fans are kind of getting their kicks on a on a kind of monthly basis so (laughs) so we wanted to kind of like go like what what are these the kind of the two extremes one which is taking the law from kind of the 80s comics and tv series kind of like to the to the nth degree and the other one which is basically ignoring it and let michael bay do his auteur thing off in off in the cinematic world strange fever dream yeah (laughs) bayhem i think they call it um then knows that the way to my heart the way to emotionally blackmail me is hey we can cover more than meets the eye on a podcast and i was like Ah, oh, okay, fine. I'll watch all those Transformers <laughs> movies again in order to do that. And well, you know what? Mate. It started out as this like sick joke, but there's actually been a weird amount of synergy that we found. And, and really, yeah, I would say around the point of Remain in Light and uh, the fourth one, Age of Extinction. You know, it, it's minor stuff, but it's like yeah. They have these, what they call, um, there's something seeds, like generation seeds, and they they vaguely resemble like Shockwave's ores, and it's like the government are teaming up with the Decepticons to hunt Autobot, you know, obviously it's stuff more in general IDW, not your books, but like, it was just interesting to be like, ah. There is something to this. Yeah, Maybe they were kind of in communication. I think like Dinobot Month was like the same time that Age yeah. of Extinction was coming out as well. And wow. yeah, it, there was just, it just, I, I don't know whether or not Hasbro had any say over like what was happening and they were like feeding to you guys at IDW kind of like, oh, would you mind doing this at this time? Because the movies are going to also head in this direction or not. But it, it was interesting yeah. when the things were crossing over like very noticeably between the two. Like, yeah, that use is... lockdown or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember being told, and even at the time it seemed quite random why, why we were having a Dinobot month that month. Uh, <laughs> maybe it began as a way of um, tying it in, yeah, kind of, with the movies. But uh, yeah, from time to time there'd be some strange, um, apparently arbitrary kind of um, directions. And, and yeah. sometimes it just our way of complying was, was simply slapping a kind of cover blurb on or something. But <laughs> our... our I think we had, we had the, uh, I mean, unless, unless God now it's come, unless it's, I'm completely wrong. And it just, it was a coincidence that both John and I happened to be doing stories with Dinobots. And- <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> well, listen, so you, um, you are confident that the last movie, the Beasts movie is in the same continuity. Yeah. We, oh, we did, co- we did cover uh... it, but like, <laughs> it was very much like, it felt like there is stuff cut from this movie that would tie it more directly yeah. into the stuff that came beforehand. But obviously we haven't had the like full behind the scenes litigation of of what that is at this point. Yeah, I, I think you could be right. I remember what I haven't seen the fourth or fifth ones. I saw Bumblebee and I saw Rise mm. of the Beasts. And I remember when, spoiler alert, I remember when Bumblebee apparently died. And I was thinking, oh, okay, he is dead, but they'll they'll bring... I was thinking some sort of multi because everyone and his and his cousin is doing a multiverse thing these days. I thought, okay, well they're gonna or it could be like Days of Future Past or some kind of yeah. They'll they'll bring him Bumblebee in from another timeline or something like that. But uh, or Starscream or start seeing his yeah. ghost, you know. Oh, either way. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um 
Oh, yeah. Well, that reminds me of another project. We can talk about this later, perhaps, this, this other project I'm working on now, which led me to look into the Starscream ghost. Uh, and Beast whatever. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Yeah. So we you mentioned Beasts there. So how we got into the fandom, like I was sort of peripherally aware of Transformers as I was anything that was two bits of plastic I could smash together. Uh, <laughs> but what really hooked me was Beast Wars. Then I think like your first exposure to Transformers ever was Beast Wars, and you actually you were like, "There's a prequel to Beast Wars," and that was <laughs> the original. Yeah, this my my friend was like, "Yeah, you know those two characters that were like frozen in pods." There's a movie about them in which like one of them dies, hinting at like Optimus Prime's death yeah. in the in the Transformers movie, and this just <laughs> blew my mind as like a, a seven year old. So I didn't. I was gonna say I didn't realize you were both nine years old at the moment. That's um, <laughs> like. There's something truly warped. It still happens, even though, you know, you are now both seasoned veterans in terms of your fandom. And, you know, you would have had similarly discordant feelings when someone comes to you and says, oh, I've got into it through Energon or something or animated. Sure. But yeah, that's that's still how it feels. My stepdaughter had a boy, had a boyfriend once and he was around to, to, for dinner. And um, this would have been, I guess, early on when I was doing the comic. And that's how it came up or something. And he's like, oh, no, I'm really into it into transformers and it and it turned out his entire the entire knowledge was was drawn from yeah from beast wars and as you say g1 just didn't didn't exist i mean that's why i wanted to slip in that like oh i was kind of aware you know i'm, I'm a little bit older than that but no you're right and and actually in fact like there's a guy i work with who is a huge trekkie and he got into it through the jj abrams films and i was like that just doesn't compute <laughs> to me sense. like how is that possible <laughs> How do you, you've, you've got to try pretty hard not to get not to know about this. Thing. Yeah. Wow. But, okay. But yeah, like you know, you've just hit the nail on the head. We we are sort of in terms of Transformers fandom, like the generation after you. You're very much like original. You were like a zine guy in the '90s. Like, are there these kind of like? Is there this animosity towards us, well, us really, Beast Wars folk? Uh, I mean, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? We um. Well, here's an analogy for you. So I'm so I'm based in Guernsey and. There's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, but kind of serious, but not really, but, but really type of um, rivalry between Guernsey and Jersey. Mm-hmm. And um, except when there is like when the UK gets involved or when England's involved, and then it's kind of you know it's it's us versus them. Right. And um, you know when there's a bigger when there's a bigger rival. And I think in a, in a kind of similar way, there probably was a bit of huffiness early on when the when the yeah, the newcomers came along and the new fans came along. But that's been massively superseded by every other, you know, se- subsequent iteration and things. And now, <laughs> from this from this distance, kind of G One and Beast Wars is kind of the same era in a, in a strange way. And, and it does. Um, I know you set me up very nicely here. I know I know it was accidental, but um, <laughs> you did mention zines as well. And so this, um, what I'm doing now is sort of attempting to write a history of the kind of pre-internet Transformers. I was at TF Nation last month, or yeah, last month. Oh, it's a long story. Some another guest took ill, and so we ended up myself and Nick Roach and Jack Lawrence ended up doing an extra panel, which was kind of a last minute thing, and it was kind of kind of indulgent. They wanted to talk to us about how we got into the fandom, and uh, yeah, the fact is the three of us were all members of this Transformers fan club in the UK called Transmasters, albeit we joined at different points. I was. See, even within Transmasters, there's like a, a hierarchy based on time. So I was there in 91, thanks. And um, and these young whippersnappers came along in 95. And anyway, we were, we were talking about this and it occurred to me in the panel that, uh, that our generation, myself and Jack and Nick, will, will be the only generation of fans who thought it really was dead. You know, if, if you know, if not dead, then, then absolutely terminally ill as a franchise, because um, I'm telling you stuff, you know, and your and your listeners know. But, in, you know, 1991 or in 1990, that was the last year of the US range, toy range in 91. The US comic folded 92, the UK comic went and things were just, you know, dying out. And I know there was European toys, but even in 91, that was a, a hodgepodge of different, you know, of Japanese molds and um, some classic reissues and stuff. So. We really thought, as fans, it was moribund to the point of, of about you know fading away. And then G two, and then again when G two sort of was a faltering success, and then that was looked like looked like it was on the way out. So when Beast Wars came along, it felt simultaneously like okay, the franchise isn't dead, dead, but it felt like we, there'd been some sort of compromise made to keep it going because yeah, this wasn't this wasn't the Transformers we were used to. And the panel that I've mentioned there, that sort of after TF Nation, I was thinking, well, what am I going to, what do I fancy doing next? And I don't think that sort of period of, of cancellation, 1992, the end of the 90s, has really been explored as 
as a period of, of sort of intense fan activity in the belief at certain points that the, that the franchise was was gone. So in pursuit of that project, I've been digging out all these old fanzines and, and I've been looking at this American newsletter called uh, Auto Update and it kind of ran from 93 to 2000. And month by month, um, you can see that the sort of the, just on the horizon, the sort of it's not got a name yet, but Beast Wars is there and it's getting closer. And and then it's got we've got news of the there, you know there's um, Optimus Prime and um, and Megatron as a crocodile on a bat, <laughs> um, and it's amazing. I, I sort of blurred the details in my memory, but look revisiting it sort of content you know, as it as it happened, there was no indication that these were just kind of stop gaps or just kind of entry level toys. That these were the new leaders. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, they reached the size of a child's hand, you know. And, um, and so that just added to this sense of this disorienting sense that everything's changing and um, might it have been better for the franchise to die than, than have this kind of a, this, this pale imitation. But then very soon after that, within 18 months, everybody was a massive Beast Wars fan. And I think when the TV show landed and people saw that it was good, all the anxiety started to melt away, you know. Yeah, like we, we talked about kind of how Beast Wars is in that like realm of the, the 90s, kids tv shows which are actually kind of like written intelligently with like mm. batman the animated, animated series and and gargoyles and like that kind of run of shows that we were getting in the 90s which were definitely more well thought out than i guess like a lot of the 80s stuff when it's just pure kind of let's advertise these toys to kids let's actually put some yeah. like thought into this stuff you're right yeah there's kind of a um speaking very generally there's, there's just a I mentioned the multiverse before. The other big sort of thing in recent years has been this desire to have a sort of synergized brand. So, you know, you've got a brand Bible. There's a single continuity. I mean, Transformers made an attempt, as you know, with the aligned continuity. Mm. But um, that can be very creatively stifling as well. And, um, yeah, weirdly, with again, looking at the Beast Wars stuff, as it was happening, it was um, Bob Ford and um, Ford and Dottillo. They they were sort of guns for hire. They at the end of season one, or as they were, as season one was nearing its end, they still didn't know whether they were, there was going to be a second season. They didn't know what kind of parameters Hasbro was going to lay down and stuff like that. It was, uh, it's interesting, but you know, the further away you get from these things, the more it sort of settles into a seductively neat kind of narrative and you kind of forget the little imperfections along the way. Yeah. I mean, we were also going to ask is that obviously you are kind of the only book in that late run of the IDW universe that didn't put any beast characters in your book i feel like everyone else had a couple of beast characters obviously like john barber had rat trap running around kind of the entire length of robots in disguise but but you didn't touch any of those characters was it because other people got their hands on them first or they're just not your characters to kind of play around with yeah that's a good question actually which no one's asked me before but i think if there's a rationale it was entirely subconscious it was just me thinking there is g1 and there is beast wars and it was no it's no kind of snide judgment on the latter it was just they are different iterations and so it just didn't occur to me that they would really that the beast warriors i guess would, would crop up you know but like i say it was i enjoyed in fact beast wars kind of got me back into things in a way i was really active in the fan club when i was sort of 14 15 16 and then other things in life happen you know and i guess g2 really yeah i mean when the g2 comic ended and and then the toy line really did feel like it was um I mean, they're still good toys, but it felt like, okay, this is this has been a last roll of the dice. So I drifted away. And at the time, it felt like I drifted away forever, but it was probably only about two years at most. And some a friend from the UK UK fan club, I remember, we, we hadn't caught up for ages. And I, we were speaking on the phone and he said, oh, you know, have you heard of these these Beast Wars characters? They're like the second biggest toy range in America right now, and there's going to be a new series and stuff. Yeah, so I got got back into it like that, and I remember seeing the agenda. That's what it was. The agenda in season two, when when they really leaned into the links to G one. Yeah, and and I thought, yeah, this is like genuinely good, and this is exciting. So yeah, so there was no way. Yeah, so there's no Beast Warriors in, in more than meets the eye. It was a kind of a an, un, an unintentionally purist G one book, I suppose. <laughs> So you come to build your your cast for this this second, you know, like I feel Robots in Disguise gets kind of the big sexy names everyone knows and and kind of intentionally you've got this this crew of of like forgotten misfit toys and and I think that can be like a real blessing in terms of a blank canvas but I know you're a huge fan of Red Dwarf and there's a specific thing with like Rimmer was chosen as the sole companion for Lister because he hated him and conflict would be considered psychologically healthy. Did that uh, consciously go into like picking the Rodimus, Ultra Magnus Drift kind of triangle and like you later put in like Ratchet and Megatron and how these people just sort of bicker constantly? <laughs> I am a big visual fan and I think it's probably 
seeped into the into more than it's the eye in, in more ways than I than even I realize. You're you're kind of right in that when I sat there, when I planned more than meets the eye, I mean obviously I'd like I think good stories need to be character driven and, and that, that, that and there needs to be conflict in them. And we were talking about a post-war world where there's not an inherent conflict. Yeah. There's not there's not a, there's not an obvious antagonist. And so yeah, I, I needed characters that would that would sort of spark off each other. And when I came to realise that the shape of the series was really it was sitcom-esque, you know. And these and I, I'd say U, UK more than US sitcoms. The best UK sitcoms do have like an engine of conflict. There's two things which which define the best UK sitcoms, and, and that is chalk and cheese, you know, characters who are also trapped. And because uh, if they weren't trapped in real life, if there's people that pissed you off, you just avoid them. So yeah, I think I think it, it made us not necessarily Red Dwarf per se, but that kind of grand tradition of people in a confined space that can't easily avoid each other. Yeah, and you do. And the other thing, of course, is that you you want to avoid a situation where everyone is kind of vanilla. So you're going for slightly larger than life characters. When I was given the, the brief for the series, it was only Rodimus and Drift that, that I had to have on board, you know, and the rest I could make up. And Drift, Drift was there because he was, at that time, it, that was the, the big attempt was trying to make him IDW's kind of Wolverine, you know, to break that <laughs> character. And no disrespect to Shane McCarthy that, that created him, you know, he, he was, but that was the kind of, you know, he, he was front and centre because I think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating, but I think IDW thought it would be nice for us as licence holders to be able to say, look, we created a sort of A-lister. Absolutely. From, yeah, no pun intended with the list of it, but yeah. And then Rodimus, and, and you know what, you know, between you and me, I've never been a huge Rodimus fan. I've not been, not been anti him, but I mean, he was, you know, he was just there. He's quite, I really mm. like, I like the look of him in the movie as a kid. I like Hot Rod the toy. This, maybe maybe it's because I was really the first time I was disappointed with a toy with a Transformers toy was when I got Rodimus. I think that was maybe where it comes from. <laughs> but um, beyond that, I could pick and choose. Now I did I did want I did I, and I knew that I needed some kind of linchpin characters, some some A-listers. So that was Ratchet, who I've, I've always loved as a character, yeah. and Ultra Magnus. They were kind of my tentpole characters, you know. But then then I could just pick and choose the the obscure ones or the you know the uh, the untouched characters. You mentioned Drift there, and I know that you know you had this big elaborate plan with like Drift is kind of manipulating Rodimus a bit, but for good reasons and and you know the visions and everything. Mm. With all of that in mind, do you have regrets about how early he was exiled, how long he spent away from the book? Because I mean, he doesn't truly leave. Like we get flashbacks, like he is yeah. talked about a lot, and he comes back in such a strong way. But like, do you have regrets about how long he is? Because it's like issue seventeen of. Yeah. close to 100 <laughs> it was and he doesn't come back to i think issue 52 yeah. i think yeah um, i think i was kind of i think i think i had to get him off the ship so that he could appear in um sure. the miniseries but but then saying that i don't think empire of stone came out for a good while after <laughs> yeah. he was exiled <laughs> yeah did i have regrets well i i did come to enjoy writing him and of course my mm. way of god it sounds like i'm being really i'm implying that you know that bad things but um for me personally what when he came alive to me was when i kind of was able to say oh he's got a new age side to him you know he's kind of sort of hyper spiritual in a way which pisses <laughs> some people off you know and he's yeah. kind of got this he's almost gone too he's almost swung too far the other way you know from his you know more ruthless per yeah. persona born again yeah. almost like, yeah, yeah this is it yeah so it was a good foil to ratchet yes yeah. of course <laughs> i mean i i always found that drift beforehand was kind of written inconsistently because it's like i think like literally his mini series ends with him going and i'm never going to pick a side in this war and then like <laughs> the very next appearances and i'll be an autobot from now on and it's just <laughs> okay yes he's a he's a free-floating signifier of different things <laughs> <laughs> It's a funny, wasn't he, Drift? Yeah, because he kind of, in my head, he's sort of, of course, he's a member of the crew. But yeah, were it not for that kind of desire to keep him fresh in the people's minds, it probably wouldn't have been my first choice. Poor old Drift. But I love that kind of almost core five that get really drilled into in, in Lost Light, where like when you get to those last few issues and Rodimus picks Magnus, Drift and Ratchet to kind of like be with him. And obviously Megatron has been gone for a little bit, but I feel like he does fold into this this group of characters very well of just how well they kind of all play off each other. And it's a real shame that like there was never any time really where the five of them were on the Lost Light together to kind of like see the, the chemistry yeah. between them. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I think um, you could have stretched the whole, I think we had about 85 issues all told um and then you know various specials and things the annual but um you could have stretched out that spine of a story 
and created spaces along the way in which you could have slotted, you know, lots of little stories, you know. And um, I mean, there was a my eldest son, he was getting um, he's into these Panini reprints of Marvel comics. And there was this was back when Mike, Brian Michael Bendis was doing the Avengers stuff. And it was more or less when and then, then it was when Avengers it was big um, in 2012, I think. Anyway, there was a Captain America, Iron Man and um, Thor sort of mini, I think it was called Prime, weirdly enough. And that was kind of just luxuriating in those kind of three big characters having a little self-contained side adventure. And it would have been fun to do that with the Spock, Bones and McCoy, you know, and you know, plus one or plus two uh, in more MCI. But I mean, it, the series kind of had its own momentum in the end. It was just galloping along, particularly in season one. You know, we had to get to the uh, Remain in Light, you know, finale. And I've often said, when you get to, when you get past the Shore Leave episode, uh, so there you go, episode issue 13, and you're into Chrome Dome versus Overlord, that's really the beginning of the end of that season. You know, the next eight or nine issues just really flow into each other, you know? So looking back, there isn't really that many opportunities to squeeze these extra stories in. No, yeah, I mean, like we, we were commenting on that and when we were kind of reading the book, how episodic those first kind of 12 13 issues are and then you really do kind of like it feels like everything clicks together when you have that that chrome dome overlord leading into everything going on on luna one and it, it does start to click and obviously that's when fan favorite characters start to come around like obviously like chrome dome rewind really start to to come together as everyone's mm. favorites at that point but obviously you originally did have them as like pitched as friends rather than like romantic characters and by the end, I feel the entire book it pivots around the romantic pairings of everyone, including Rodimus, Drift, and Ratchet in that weird flirtatious way that Rodimus and Drift have by the end of the book. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, it's a nice evolution, really, because it, it reflects two things. Really, it reflects. I was going to say Hasbro, but IDW as well. It's easy. It's easy to forget and take for granted that IDW themselves, John Barber and um, Carlos and um, David Marriott, they, they were all in, in their own way just extremely accommodating and accepting. So props to them. But but the, the bigger the bigger sort of potential problem was if Hasbro hadn't gone with it and uh, Michael Kelly at Hasbro was, was always really supportive. So that was good. And the other thing, of course, is, is that the readers themselves, you know, really took to it. And that, that, that encourages you and emboldens you. And you've always got to be careful, stating the obvious here, but you've always got to be careful not, not to write to, to the fans or for the fans. Do you know what I mean? You can't write to order and you've got to be careful not to not to just make everything fan service at the same time if you're seeing that things are going down well and it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to replicate it but if you think okay well i've got the measure of a sizable chunk of readers here and and they get it you know that we're on the same wavelength and that that encourages you to sort of take things further so um yeah that's really how it happened and then having romantic well admittedly yes often romantic pairings but there was as many kind of um this very deeply felt personal or interpersonal relationships which i think kept it you know sort of strung strung the stories together as well yeah i mean you mentioned the fans there and how like there's the fans who are obviously reading this book because of the romantic elements that are that you're kind of like seeding through it and did you have a handle on the fact that like a lot of these fans are maybe new to transformers or like were you just assuming that everyone who's reading this is in the transformers fandom first and foremost and we're not getting that many outsiders coming mm. to explore this book i've always been quite a selfish writer in that um <laughs> or arrogant um or both in that i think well if i think this is good then this is good, even if even if it doesn't land, even if other people don't. And conversely, if, if I don't think something is good, then then it mustn't get any further. I need to work at it till it's better. But at the very beginning, I thought, well, look, I know what I love about Transformers, and I know what made what made me fall for the franchise and what's kept me interested. So I'm gonna that's the vein I'm gonna kind of mine. I'm gonna try and replicate that. And so there was a kind of I mean, people have said, and there, and there, there's a point to it. There's a kind of a TM uh, Transformers UK feel to some of the early stuff maybe superficially but as as we went on and you do see people react and then crucially as I started to see as I started to go to conventions and see the composition of attendees change and it wasn't just my perception it's been remarked to me that um you know in 2012 13 14 the balance of genders shifted at conventions and the age of fans started to drop the average age you know and it was and I'm not saying it's all more than meets the eye that the IDW phase two era it did bring in you know, a different composition, different demographic. So that was really exciting because you think, oh, wow, there's, there's you know, because you <laughs> brutally and commercially, you need new readers and you need new fans. And if you're, if you're trying to cater for a shrinking, hardcore group of fans, as much as we all love them, and I count myself among them, it's just not going to last. So to have that injection of, of fresh readers and that fresh enthusiasm, 
And you saw this spread of really inspiring creative outputs across Twitter and across Tumblr. And it was just really invigorating, you know? We are some of those new fans in a way, because, you know, we we had Transformers in our youth. And like, as you said, you know, your teen years, you kind of maybe drift away from things a bit. And I, you know, I, I had been peripherally aware of like what was happening in Transformers, but like, I learned about your books through Chris Sims and, and, and Comics Alliance and stuff oh, like yeah. that were, were doing like best comics of the year lists for like all, all of comics. And he listed this Transformers title. And honestly, I was like, there's simply no way there's a good, like genuinely good Transformers <laughs> book. And then I go and read it off this recommendation and like, I'm, you know, smitten with it, like front to front to back, like multiple okay. times, forced yeah. Ben to read it, all this stuff. So we very much are those kind of newer Last. fans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, no criticism of what you created because like it is so important to me. But like, you could never have known when you started that one, it would find that sort of larger, more diverse audience, and two, you would get close to a hundred issues by the time you were done. If you had that gift of prophecy <laughs> and knew that you'd be writing this sort of more broad appeal book for longer, yes. is there anything you'd have done differently in terms of like pacing about when to deploy like new characters and concepts and stuff like that? Oh, these, these are good questions. Um, uh, yeah, I think, okay, well, I'll refer you to my earlier answer about how arrogant I was. So I always thought this has got legs. There's a lots of decisions I took creatively, which which make me sweat in hindsight because they could have gone <laughs> wrong. Um, and they were kind of, there was this kind of presupposition that, that we would just keep going. And I will answer your question, but as an aside, what, what I benefited from at the time was was not having written many comics before mm. and actually not really being at that point not being that big of a comic fan anymore i was hugely into comics as a teen probably late 80s to well maybe not even mid 90s actually um, and then you know other things again other things got in the way so i was kind of um still massively into transformers by by the time idw came along i hadn't read any idw comics prior to um the possibility of working for them so this sometimes ignorance can be a, a, an asset so that that helped um in terms of the create the decisions i took plot wise and, and to give an example you know that bit in issue one where rung is showing his serial code and it's <laughs> you know it appears to be 10 or 100 billion or something and so it was six years later before that paid off but the yeah. ambition slash arrogance of me then was like well I, it, we'll get there we'll get there so yeah and i think also there can be a danger in, hmm, how can I put it? I've been lucky in that my approach has been a blend of meticulous long-term planning, but with just enough just enough room to, to pursue interesting little diversions if the opportunity is there, you know, if the mood takes me. Yeah. So I, I've never had, I've never written myself into a corner too, too much. The, the, having said that, you know, when the axe fell and they said to me, oh, you know, you've got, you've got a year to wrap it up there were there are had i known that a bit earlier there were certain things in, in the last season that i wouldn't have um i wouldn't have really i wouldn't have pursued the infinites perhaps in the same way you know and we never mm -hmm. really got to, to explore that properly and things like that and i would have and again if i if they, if they said to me you've got exactly 100 issues then yeah pacing wise i would have spaced out the amiga the return of the amiga guardians and, and their mo and stuff like that their plans so um, yeah there was there was some compression at the end which we could have avoided yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's just, it's interesting to go from that, like, first three issues being, like, very tightly centred on the kind of the ship, and then you immediately jump into these segmented stories based on different members of the crew, because obviously you kind of then go into the Ratchet arc that that introduces mm. Farmer and kind of sets up a lot of stuff. Like, was that always your intention of the structure, was to kind of almost do, like, centric arcs focused on characters? or Because it's not that it goes away, but it does kind of become more whole crew exercises as it goes along. Yeah, so there, there's a combination of needing to hold uh, hold the spotlight on certain people early on in order that they can kind of bed in and, and sort of get a purchase on, on readers' imaginations. There was also I was also extremely keen for this not to be a decompressed comic, like you know my era of comics. You know, you would you'd get one, two, three parters. You would not spend six months telling a story. You know, you wouldn't have it. You you wouldn't write for the trade in that sense. And I really wanted. If not, if not done in one issues, if not wholly self-contained, but you know, one, two, maybe three parters that told a complete story, and within that, which ended on a cliffhanger as well. I felt that in my experience of modern comics, there wasn't enough. A couple of things really. There wasn't enough cliffhangers. People didn't make enough effort to, to, <laughs> to say like, come back next time and find out what happens. Down to more minor things, like I just thought, you know, I, I, I we didn't always achieve it in more than the eye. 
but trying to have a, have a cover which related to the story and which tried to grab you, grab your attention. And the reason, by the way, the reason why that becomes difficult these days is because you're having to put solicits out there four months in advance. And anyway, a few things then. In, in, in summary, I, it was very much a deliberate episodic approach because um, that lent itself to that type of compressed storytelling, which I was really keen to pursue. Anna and I saw it, saw it as, as a de facto TV show as well. So, you know, you'd have these 45 minute episodes and the need to to drill down on certain characters early on. Yeah. And and, and actually, the other thing to mention is you, you'll notice in season, in the first season, particularly the first year or so, we hop from genre to genre. Yeah. So, you know, you get the alien-esque kind of monster on the ship and then you get the, at a stretch, the kind of sort of medical drama with the <laughs> two-parter. You get in shadow play, you know, you've got a police procedural and you've got a heist thing. And, you know, we, we just sort of, I say we, because, you know, it was um, team more than Missy I made it all happen. But, um, yeah, try to hop around a bit and keep things fresh. You mentioned the, like, alien adventure almost, and Nemo Surgery ends up being this fantastic, like, narrative device to, like, dole out exposition and, and do reveals and, you know, mm. that incredible splash page the first time Chrome Dome injects and it's all in black and white and it's all sketchy and everything. <laughs> but obviously you, you sewed early on that it's harm it's like hazardous to his health mm. was it a real struggle to know how often to go to that well yeah it, it was actually and um and, and i don't want to imply that i don't have a, a life a sort of creative life outside of transformers but you know the, an analogy is megatron g1 megatron's ability which we did see in more than eye but his ability to tap, to tap into a black hole <laughs> and this is like a an apocalyptic power really which is extremely powerful but can kill everything and so in the uk comic i mean he used it twice he used it in issue 21 i think and then in issue 104 and that's the kind of spaced outness you want you know what i mean <laughs> the truck yeah it was it was difficult and i'm sure at one point i seriously contemplated you know him chrome dome dying from doing it because that's the other thing you know it becomes every time you use it and it do- and it doesn't lead to death <laughs> then it, you undermine it as a as a concept you know yeah but that i mean obviously leads to kind of like the really good finale for chrome dome rewind in mm. in that issue 50 where obviously you've you've built up to this and you kind of close off their arc there in kind of like the or issue 55 isn't it when around yes. about when that's happening so yeah. you close off chrome dome and rewind there and then they're kind of adrift a little bit, I feel, for Lost Light. Was that like you just going kind of like, right, I've actually reached a good emotional climax for these two here. Let's mm-hmm. shift our focus on to kind of like these new characters that you're introducing, like Anode and Lug. And obviously you've introduced a whole raft of new characters at the start of season two as well. Yes. So there was a degree of necessity, uh, as you say, because the cast had become extremely large. And I probably wouldn't have, you know, I love Anode, I, I love Lug. I probably wouldn't have... I mean, we had those two and we had Roller and Nickel. You know, if we, ha- if we just kept the more than meets the eye numbering running and we hadn't had to have a kind of relaunch or a de facto relaunch, which necessitated like, a, you know, you needed an audience surrogate to kind of make it a bit of a jumping on point, probably wouldn't have grown the cast as, as large as I did. It's interesting, Chrome Dome and Rewind. So there is a, I'm a big X-Files fan and, you know, there was, there's the myth arc, you know, this sort of very slow burning alien invasion plot, which unfolds over many seasons and uh x-files ran for God, actually ran for 11 seasons but you know the original run was nine but it was in season six midway through that you know chris carter thought you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna have to sort of bring this main mythology to an end because it just can't be pulled out any further as an aside you probably should have finished the season series then but um, <laughs> there was an element of that you know chrome and rewind that there needed to be closure there needed to be a climax to that story at least and it is true that 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 was you know, the a- Agent 113 and the pneumosurgery addiction, that was, they were so prominent in their, uh, and, you know, if you want that also rewind dying, but, you know, they were so prominent in their relationship that once you kind of addressed that and, and as I say, had closure, what do you do? Where do you go from there? And I was quite satisfied at that closing, at, at, that, at that ending, if you like, because, and I hope this has been a rule that I've obeyed throughout the run, you know, you, you can't keep piling up mystery after mystery. You do need to to have a payoff and you do need to resolve some things uh you know maybe you can move on to other things but you just can't juggle too many balls at once so yeah so all that said there was a huge chrome dome rewind plot for season three and four uh, and yeah the aborted season four and i it's interesting because i'm glad we didn't do it in the end is, is kind of the punchline but um it would have kicked off with an interlude in issue 12 
And so you know, I, I was writing EC12 when IDW said, oh, you know, we're going to reboot the whole continuity and we, we're going to finish in EC23. And so I was literally there thinking, right, well, this next scene, <laughs> if I write it as intended and it sparks off a whole new plot, you know, am I, am I going to be able to do it justice and resolve it in the next 12 issues? You know, along with all the other stuff that I now need to wrap up. And I decided ultimately, no, I couldn't. And so um, so I didn't go there, which was good, as I say. But yeah, that the effect of that actually was, as you as you very astutely observed, was that Chrome Demon Rewind become more of a, a settled kind of a B-list pairing for most of well, for the duration of Lost Light, really. I mean, to be honest with you, it never got to this point, but I but I, in my head I'd always thought, well, I, I will. I'll stop at AC 100, you know, even if, even if they wanted to keep it going. I, I felt in my, in my bones, you know, there's, there's enough stories here for a season four and, you know, we can, we can end on, end on a hundred, but, but it can't, it can't go on forever. And even if we'd, we'd indulged and had these little side quests and, and storylines, you know, it, it is in itself, it is a quest and you do need to deliver. You know, it had to have an ending. Which much the point of your finale that like we can't just do this forever. Or we can infinitely, but yeah. I'm not gonna write it anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, probably deliberately or or not, kind of, yeah. I mean, more than meets the eye's always been a little bit better. Yeah, definitely some there was some of my commentary coming in at the end there. You know, you just mm. can't you just can't run. And I'd mentioned earlier about sort of naivety as a virtue sometimes. And uh, you know, both how I ended up writing the comic in the first place and even like I just said, you know, being told, oh, we're going to wrap it up, but you've got a year. I mean, that is, that's very unusual. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Normally it'd be like, I mean, in Simon Furman's case with the original comic, you know, when he was writing issue 75 of the US, of the American one, they said, you know, he thought that was going to be the finale. And they said, no, no, we, we can keep going. So he wrote an epilogue and then he launched about five new plot lines with issue 76. And then he was writing, he's about to write issue 78. And they said, actually, we're going to end on 80. You've got three issues, you know, so... Yeah. yeah, I was very lucky. So on the subject of like some of those newer characters and, and some of the stuff that happens towards the end that maybe, you know, ends a bit sooner than you would have liked mm. it to have, the mutiny is such a huge like gut punch for readers like the reveal and the and and the mutinous trilogy especially the sort of time loop episode which incredible riptide kind of acts as the the judas if you will like the member of the mm. rod squad who <laughs> who betrays them was there ever a temptation to have somebody no offense to riptide but a little bit more integral <laughs> be the big betrayer to make it hurt even more like when we covered this we were trying to like go down the list of candidates and it was like god who could it be <laughs> uh, well you know what guys that's kind of, that was kind of my problem because i think if i'm honest i think my because my focus of course was on the answer is getaway actually you know he because the answer is the the the, the mutineer, the chief mutineer is, is the big betrayal, is, is the big shock, you know? So you're kind of looking for a number two big betrayer, you know? Mm. Because Getaway was, I mean, lest we forget, Getaway was, was, it was certainly intended to be in the main gang, you know? He was one of the main the main cast. So it's his betrayal that, that's, that's the main event. And other than Riptide, if you're looking for kind of a secondary betrayer, it wouldn't really have been true to the, to the, to the characters that I'd written, I don't think. You know, you can't imagine you can't imagine Nautica doing it. You can't imagine Rewind or Kremlin doing it. And and that's that's the other thing. You kind of you you rule out the, the couples or the would be couples um, unless you want to have both of them do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think Ben landed on Ratchet, and my immediate response was not Ratchet. And it's like well, maybe <laughs> that's why it works. But... I was going to say that that's either an argument for or against, actually, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And like, yeah. I mean, you ultimately reveal that, like, obviously they all went through with it originally willingly mm. and, and they don't yeah. know all the details. They come to be brainwashed, etc. Was that always the intention? Was there ever an attempt? Like, was it a big no-no to have a lot, like, that large group of antagonistic Autobots? Or did you just, was that never an interest to you? How do you mean in terms of sort of people that are... Just... Sort of like revealing that, like, the entire mutineer crew were au fait with almost all of it and are just fine with it and are like, yeah, Fuck Megatron. <laughs> unless I, God, God, I think we have now we are, we are bearing witness to the point where and I've seen it happen to other creators where they start to forget the details of their own story. <laughs> yeah. So with that caveat, because I think um, I mean I know they use the nudge gun uh, yeah. and anybody that wasn't like on board, you know, forget we had this conversation. But I mean, yeah. the people that that, that didn't go to um, Messatine were kind of they're all. You know, they may not be to different degrees, but they are all you know comfortable yeah. with um, with what had happened. You know, I, I guess I guess where I'm coming from is 
when this crew leaves Cybertron in the first place, oh, it's, yeah. it's as you say, it's like a it's a post-war society. What do they do without this war that has defined them? And there's yeah. very much a like it feels Rodimus is leading from a point of I've checked the temperature of the room and it's not great to be an Autobot on Cybertron right now. And off they go, all basically Autobots except for Cyclonus. Mm. And by the end of the book, you know, while they are actually literally having sort of the other book is kind of exploring we've replaced the war with sort of politics and this book by the end of it is like hey autobots decepticons it actually does not matter and like cyclonus by the end of it is a beloved member of the crew and mm. all these kind of things so i i just i wondered if like there was a temptation to have i mean i guess a number of your villains are kind of autobots gone astray but i i guess that's where i'm coming from of like did you ever want to fully drive that point home with like hey look the autobots are the villains in this situation I mean, as you said, actually, we we did have. I mean, farm farmer is a you know yeah. Autobot, <clears throat> and um, Tyrest. And... I was going to say Tyrest is kind of. I was, I was about to say Tyrest. I thought, well, he's kind of neutral, but yeah, yeah I mean, he, he wasn't Decepticon. I think I think early on, you know, when Tailgate is is tempted to be, when he wants says he wants to become a Decepticon because he's been kind of fed the Decepticon point of view. There, there was th- there were elements. There was times like that in the comic where I tried to sort of say the Autobots aren't. You know, aren't blameless. Actually, more, I suppose what's better, what's more accurate is I tried to get across the idea that the, we, we we've spent our whole lives with the Autobot military. Really, these aren't civilians. And so when John and I were pitching, you know, we were sort of thrashing out ideas for the death of Optimus Prime, which was kind of the the prelude to or the launch pad to the new era. What really unlocked everything for us was when it was like, okay, well, we're going to bring the non the non military population back. You know, you know, it turns out the people that you've followed and that you're attached to they are I'm not, and I'm not I'm not implying that military equals bad although maybe I am but I'm not but um <laughs> I'm just saying that you know that there's a lot of literally non-affiliated ordinary Cybertronians who far outnumber the people we've we've been used to and what's their point of view you know what what do they think and actually in, in we see in Death of Optimus Prime they're not that big a fan fans of the Autobots you know and you can have some degree, I think, of sympathy with their perspective because, uh, well, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting the obvious thing here, which was Last Stand of the Wreckers, which was a treatise on, on the atrocities committed by the Autobots, you know, and, and indeed the Equitus. I mean, have you, have you read Last Stand of the Wreckers, actually? Of course. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I, I read every single IDW 2005-era <laughs> book for this project. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, he went, he went above and beyond what the brief was for homework. <laughs> it's, why, it's why the names are escaping my mind at points, because I'm just like I'm fully a lot of so a lot like of four four hundred and fifty issues or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sure was helpful when we got to the Magnificence and the Omega Guardians, though. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah, I was the cool. I was the only one that had read the the Rodimus stuff from from <laughs> from Furman. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I do often think in hindsight. I feel for those for those new fans we were talking about that jumped on board and who had never read the the Shuns, uh, never wrote favorite and early stuff. But here we go. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm really desperate to ask about Imperata. Did you look at Whirl and think, why is he so much more fucked up looking than the rest of them? And then work backwards into the concept? Or did it just happily fit around? And like Shockwave also has this very unique physiology that just happily yeah. kind of resembles Whirl. <laughs> I think, I think I'm probably 95% certain it was... Um... Because I was very into, I tell you what it was, with my Transformer brain, Transformers fan brain, I was always thinking, well, why, why is it like that? You know, certain things that we just accept. Like, well, what, what's, what's the, like the, the other example is um, what, what I ended up calling, um, you know, phase sixes. You know, yeah. Why is it that, that a handful of Transformers are just so much more powerful than others? Given that, we are led to believe that basically it's a case of, you know, of constructing a body. Everyone's got a spark. Everyone's got. A, why not just build bigger bodies? You know. So that was when the load bearer thing came in. You know. So I was trying to make some sense of these kind of transformer universe fundamentals, uh, and also because I just find it interesting to. It's nice to get transformery sometimes. You know, to really kind of dig into the society. And if you can, if you can provide an explanation for something which fans have until that point kind of taken for granted or not questioned. If you can make them question it and then give give them an explanation which kind of uses transformer law as leverage, that's really satisfying. So, yeah, so it was definitely world first. I was thinking about world, like, well, why why does he have that face? And <laughs> and is it and is it or well, more to the point, why does everyone have faces that are kind of humany? Like, why you know, what does it mean to have just just an eye? And it kind of the, this, this sense of mutilation as punishment, which mm. is to me felt like a really neat 
and, fun, and, and crucially, just a really easily graspable idea. So you get, you know, you lose your face, you lose your hands. So, and, and I think, you know, when, when, when I hit upon that, it was just, well, the, the Shadow Play three-parter was a late addition to the book. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't planned until Hasbro said, you know, we want both books to have Optimus Prime in them. Not long after we launched, you know, so I was like, well, how are we going to make that happen? So John's answer was, we'll, we'll follow his adventures in space. And mine was, we'll do a good old flashback, you know. So when I started to put that together, then I thought, oh, you know, we can have Shockwave. And oh, you know, there we go. Shockwave's another one. And probably Roadbuster's the only other one I can think of off the top of my head. That sort of G1 characters with that type of facial feature. So I thought, okay, great. We can use the Imperator law to account for him as well. So it, it fits fitted together really neatly. Yeah, which actually leads on to a question we had about the Functionalist Council, where they obviously invented Imperator, but they all look like they've had it done on them. Was that a choice you made to have them be kind of like religious flagellists who had, who had submitted this themselves or was it they were born this way and wanted other people to kind of look like them as a punishment like it's just fascinating with these yeah. these 12 characters yeah no i wish i could give you an answer to that i mean i know that i there was no outside influence i i said to it would have been alex i think i said like i i, I want them to look like this yeah while i wish i could tell you there was kind of a deep theological bent to it <laughs> i just thought it, they're going to look fucking cool if they've got <laughs> if they've got like cogs for heads. So, so I'm going to you shouldn't have picked behind the curtain on that one. That was the, <laughs> that's the reason for that one. And they do look amazingly cool. And by the way, one of the very best Transformers comics, full stop, the covers rather, is um, I think it's Nick Roach doing the close up of whatever it was, seven or seven or twelve or something, issue thirty five or thirty six. You know, look it up, listeners. It's an amazing cover. Just very coggy. So the Functionalist Council, like, in many ways, the ultimate villain of the... I mean, you know, there's a few yeah. people in contention yeah. there. You create the DJD and, and Tarn as this iconic character that becomes, like, I think the first IDW uh, original... Well, I guess Drift, but okay. <laughs> One of the first IDW originals to get, like, an officially licensed toy and, like, Tyrest drilling holes in his head and, and just <laughs> so many of these, like, iconic villain Farmer sawing somebody in half the wrong way, you know, all this stuff. Do you talk about like the the uh, the challenges of like because you also got to play with these long established villains like Scorponok mm. and like you know you do flashback Megatron stuff and, and and stuff like that sort of trying to write for them you know these big shoes versus the blank canvas of creating your own villains and like you know which is more fun? Mm. Well, the, 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 they've both got um, not to be offensive, but they've, they've both got advantages. The great thing about about the blank slate is as I'm sure you can guess, you know, no rules, chance to make your mark, chance to create, you know, a, a, an iconic villain, um, which is, which, which, I mean, so much of Tarn's success is down to Alex's, Alex Milne's incredible design, you know, but um, so you get the opportunity potentially to create something that, that's lasting. But if you're dealing with like, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the villains in Transformers are just massively, uh, well, again, massively iconic and so that was the whole thrill about getting megadrum on board for season two and got the opportunity to write not just to write him but to, to take him on that journey and um same with scorplock as well scorplock was going to have a different a far more prominent role mm -hmm. until megatron became became a, a main cast member and and what that did kind of that kind of turbocharged the djd side of things you know so we didn't get around to scorplock as you know until season three i guess it does get a little bit tricky I'll tell you, when, when, when I needed another villain and uh, another, another, another prominent Decepticon and we brought Deathsaurus in, by that point, I knew that I didn't want another mad scientist and I didn't want another psychopath. You know, I just wanted a really competent general who <laughs> still absolutely ideological and, uh, you know, an evil Decepticon. But he cared for his troops. He was he was he wasn't um, prone to outbursts. You know, he was tactical. You know? Nazi so, middle management. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, uh, <laughs> but I tell you what, if I'd had to come up with another one, season four, I pretty much I probably cycled through all the main tropes by that point. You know, we'd had we'd had the psychopath, we'd had the religious zealots, we'd had the competent general. You know, so um, yeah, running out of uh, templates, I think. So I I want to touch on like one final thing before we wrap up, which is. <laughs> There's one character in the IDW continuity that you probably have the biggest influence on, even though you wrote comparatively very little for him, which is Prowl. Oh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, do, do you have regrets that you didn't get to, like, get more hands-on time with Prowl over the course of the run? But obviously, like, the stuff that you did with him after uh, All Hell Megatron kind of, like, sets up that entire character for, for almost a decade. Well, I mean, I've got it. 
I've got to give props to, I mean, it's really Nick Roach, uh, who should take <laughs> all, the, all the credit for that. I mean, it was Nick that, um, everything in its own, it's a Radiohead title, isn't it? Everything, everything in its own place, everything yes. in the right place. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my involvement with that was really peripheral. I mean, I was kind of a sounding board and gave some feedback, but none of my feedback really had to do with how he was portraying Prowl. So, so Nick, Nick kind of captured that Prowl. And I think both Nick and I, as Transformers UK fans, our, our Prowl, so to speak, you know, would, would have elements of that kind of manipulation, hard-headedness, you know, logic dictates type thing. But Nick really took it to the stratosphere. And then when, we, when he and I did, did records, that was a chance to, to do more Prowl goodness. And so, yeah, a combination of always being a fan of his, really liking Nick's take and, um, and you know, wanting to run with it. So when I got the chance to write to him in um, Titan's Return, that was great. And it also felt somehow fitting that he should be there at the very end as well. And you know what? Um, despite the the many adventures and traumas and experiences that Prowl has had throughout the thirteen years of continuity, he is kind of he's just fundamentally the same guy. And I don't mean that as a kind of criticism of of the writing, but he's his his core characteristics are so dominant. Never <laughs> compromise. This is it. And, and and the nature of his character, you know, he's always fifty steps ahead. He's always, he buries any kind of you know outward emotion and so on. But he is, of course, going to be outwardly at least the same kind of guy at the end of this journey than he was at the start so um, yeah like yeah. like such a i remember the first time I, I i finished this run like i hated prowl so much for going <laughs> ahead i mean he's right megatron did all those things but i still hated him for like being like nah fuck you you die now <laughs> yeah yeah and, and obviously like shadow plays like the the time you got to spend the most with prowl i guess especially in yeah. more than meets the eye you are probably the preeminent person for having written kind of pre-war Cybertron at this point, I feel. Mm, uh, I guess or, so. that, that, that era of pre-war. Yeah, that, that era, yeah. for sure, which which feels like that's the era that they're going to be borrowing from for this new movie, this animated movie that's coming up soon. I don't Has anyone like reached out to consult with you about any of your like takes on this era or anything like that? Or is this just, it's going to be like a, a Marvel Cinematic universe, universe thing where like the comic writers have got no input and they're just <laughs> borrowing these stories like whole cloth? I'm pretty sure it's the latter. I certainly haven't been approached <laughs> by anybody. I mean, Earthspark, obviously, is... Um, that I know, I know May Cat from Earthspark, and um, we were both guests at TF Nation. You know, she said that that more than the was everybody in the writers' room had read that, and that that was kind of um, that they thought of that fondly, which was lovely to hear. And mm. uh, you know, there's elements in I don't maybe not Earthspark, the the cartoon. No, yeah, Earth, Earthspark or, is yeah, that's right. Earthspark, but then there was, a, was it one of the Cyberverse stories, but the world world crops up in. Um, oh, of course, yeah. yeah and then Tarn was the lead villain of like one of the the yeah. final season as well yeah. of of that. Yeah. And then like so, Earthspark has Autobot Megatron and and stuff like that. So, so you get this stuff and you think, oh, well, that's that's nice. You know, they they there's some maybe they've drawn upon some some things. You know, and then I was reading a little bit about the new um, Skybound Transformers comic. You know, and yeah. uh, a Q and A that was done, and, and it's like, no, we've not read we've not read any of the comics at all. We, we, I think apart from All Hail Megatron, you know, nothing else we've we've looked at. And you think, oh, okay. And and you've got it's their prerogative to read or not read or, or watch or not watch what they want. So you can you can never be you can never take it for granted that a creative team, whether it's in comics or TV or film, has has seen your stuff. But obviously, you hope you hope they have. And and they and I don't think I'm alone in this. Uh, although maybe I'm just trying to make myself feel better. It, it's really un, unusual for for us creators, us comic creators, to be to be approached by anybody for kind of. Mm. Um, Unless it's in a professional sense, like they, they want to pay you to do something, it all you know, if, if if there's any kind of drawing upon other material at all, it just happens remotely. And 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 what I hope to, I mean, realistically, what I hope is that I'll go and see the movie, and, and there might be something in there somewhere which makes you think, oh, okay, maybe maybe that maybe that's influenced by something. Yeah, I know Matt and I are both like we sit in the credits of like the Marvel movies and see like which creators they've given <laughs> those thanks to to like go see which comics they explicitly say they're pulling from for these movies and it'd be nice to see that in in kind of other areas where there's this huge tapestry of history and law that you can pull from to kind of like tell different stories this is it and 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 again uh, i feel this is a kind of a repeated caveat but i'm not not intending to denigrate anything but um you can't over overestimate the shadow which the original american cartoon you know casts over 
you know, the sort of creative enterprises outside of the comics these days, you know, it's, I didn't realize that, you know, until kind of the mid nineties really and speaking to other fans and it was just so ubiquitous and so dominant five days a week for years and years, well, probably three, four years, one way or another. Whereas in the UK, um, you know, we just, we got the occasional video, we got a few episodes <laughs> on a day and, you know, the comic was our equivalent, you know, and, and there's a really striking parallel there. If you look at the trajectory of you know all, all right let's put it a different way if you look at the output of um fans you know fans in the 80s and 90s that went on to become professionals and went on to become creators you can tell which ones <laughs> are british or irish and which ones are american just just because of the we just draw upon different wells for inspiration you know Absolutely. You talk about G1 casting this huge shadow. I think not just because I'm talking to you. I think what you wrote casts a huge shadow as well for a lot of people. You've been pulling the curtain back a bit on your creative process with these notebooks. I know that, uh, so this will release on the 20th of September. So I don't know if you want to plug the latest of those. Oh, I do. Thank you very much. Yes. So for those that are unfamiliar with them, I um, I spent a lot of time um, with More Than Meets the Eye mapping out how the story would fit together, you know. So I, I mentioned before about meticulous planning and how you can go too far. But I was very keen to sort of generate as many ideas as possible and get them all in writing and then sort of sift through them and see which ones had legs and how they could fit together. And I would do all this by hand. So I'd have all these, you know, notebooks that I would just fill up. And there's probably about 30 or 40 of them. And then I'd, I'd transcribe those, some of those notes um, and, you know, and then I would mix and match and edit. And so these more than it's notebooks, volumes one and two came out last year. Volumes three and four have just come out. They're professionally uh, made, you know, which sounds an odd thing to point out. But, you know, they are professional graphic designers, professional printing. They, they look uh, they look the part. And volumes one and two, basically the, the main content in them is my notes, my ideas and my world building and sort of how it all came together. So as someone said, if you're a process junkie and you want to see how the series came together, what was left out, what changed along the way, then volumes one and two cover season one, three and four just come out. They cover season two. We'll be wrapping up the series with two more volumes next year. And that'll take us into three in the abortive season four. And yeah, it's just um, kind of like the, the, the one chance you'll have to really get into the weeds and see you know, how everything came together. So yeah, so if anybody's interested, you can, if you look at my Twitter feed, there'll be something on there. If you look at my Instagram, so Twitter is, uh, God, what is it? At jroberts332. And the Instagram is j.roberts332. Or you can simply email mtmte.books at gmail and put new customer as your uh, or anything as your message header and i'll um, i'll send you the details thank you that's like a radio interview where you know <laughs> and, and i want to stress to your listeners i didn't i would have done this even though i hadn't had the chance to, to plug it but it has it's made it all i think you can agree it's given this a more professional sheen that you've got <laughs> uh, like yep. a little rasping plug at the end it was a happy accident because i just said hey maybe <laughs> he would want to talk to us and then you announced you were dropping the new notebook soon mm -hmm. i was like well there's incentive to lure it. there we go <laughs> so, yes. so i'm playing at the old vic at the moment and that's what normally happens <laughs> <laughs> no because yeah. we have huge process junkies so like it's actually a shame we did the podcast when we did because I like the, the season oh, yeah. one episodes were so informed by like what Matt was getting from the notebooks and it's almost like oh god I, I wish we could have held off a little bit longer to do to do the the rest of it so we could have all the whole collection oh. <laughs> thank you so much for your time we are going to be back next week with James's blessing to talk a little bit of not what's in the notebooks from next year but some material that is out there in limited capacity that will get a little bit into some stuff that may have been uh, as maybe like a little teaser for, for next year's full notebooks which will go into a lot more detail so we thank you for that blessing James and we thank you so much for your time thank you very much lovely thank you Okay, so that was our interview with James. We thank him again for his time. If you would like to continue supporting us, because this is basically the end of our Transformers podcast, we do have one more bonus episode next week, wherein we will be going over some little details about alternate versions of the ending of More Than Meets the Eye and Lost Light, and, and some stuff about what might have been. But our next endeavour will be Untitled Bojack Horseman podcast, brilliantly named by Ben. It's a deep reference to the show, but like <laughs> I think the other one in my head 
had was like a play on like Hollywood stars and stars and celebrities. Do, Podcast do they know hosts, things? what do they know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, if you search Untitled Bojack Horseman podcast right now, anywhere you get your podcasts, you will be able to find that. Right now, it will just be a holding piece of audio so you can subscribe to it and episodes won't be coming until November. We will be doing one season of the show per episode of the podcast, so it's not planned as a super, super long one. It's something we've always wanted to cover via podcasting. In terms of stuff we've already done, our first one together was Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey. That is a MCU podcast. We have covered every single thing in the MCU up to now in painstaking detail. We will have one more episode of that around Christmas time covering Guardians of the Galaxy 3, and in that we will explain why just that. <laughs> we also have There Will Be Movies, which was our podcast where we did uh, 25 movies from any given decade, basically covering our favourite movies from those decades. We covered 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, and the 2010s. So there's 100 movies sat there waiting yes. for you to kind of listen to. So you can hear our <laughs> thoughts on things like Robocop and Bound and the- Brokeback Mountain. Brokeback and Mountain. All genres, everything. Like our podcasting has generally been quite nerdy, like pop culture stuff, and we wanted to try and hit up everything serious movies silly movies comedies horrors anywhere you get your podcast these things exist search ben and matt's marvelous journey and there will be movies and join us in november for untitled bojack horseman podcast please and thank you very very much we already thank james i thank you ben i thank you matt until next week in our bonus episode and we thank you if you've been listening this long and and, and listen to our little plugs there and would like to consider hearing more of our stuff but until then audience Roll out. This is why, this is why we fight. When we die, we will die with our arms unbound. This is why, this is why. So come to me